This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, right, guys. Today, I've got a special guest on the show, and that is Matthew Lohmeyer. So he is a newly retired lieutenant colonel who served in the United States Space and Air Forces, and he was transferred to the Space Force in October of 2020 after previously serving 14 years in the Air Force. He graduated from the Air Force Academy back in the day. He was a fighter pilot. He was a trainer. He was all those things. But here's why most people know that name now. Okay. He was removed from his command in the United States Space Force, where he was leading the 11th Space Warning Squadron on May 15th of 2021, actually May 14th, but the world knew about it on May the 15th. After he appeared on a podcast to publicize the release of a book that he called Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmasking of the American Military. Okay, so this book contained very pointed critiques of the race and diversity centered programs that were being instituted inside the United States military on military bases and in the academies. Okay, and he categorizes these things as neo Marxist, which they are. But the thing about it is it was such a crazy thing that this guy is blowing the whistle on some of the, the craziest things that you would not even believe United States military members are being exposed to. And he was basically given the cold shoulder. I mean, this guy worked his chain of command. He, he tried to figure out a way to get this out there. And then he finally came to the conclusion, I just need to write a book about this because it's nefarious. But he wrote a very careful book where he didn't, you know, attack the current administration or his chain of command or any of those things that could have really gotten him in trouble. But it still ended up with him being bounced out of the military, losing his command and, you know, deciding to retire. So we get into all that here in this particular interview. And just to let you guys know. I didn't get to ask half the questions I wanted to in this interview because he gives very, very detailed answers, which I can appreciate because his book, Irresistible Rev Revolution, is incredibly detailed. And so a lot of times when you're dealing with an author, it's like, you know, you want to get into the book, but you want to kind of leave a little bit on the table so guys will go and get it. But even with his answers that were very detailed, you've got to go get this book to kind of read through and kind of see some of the things that he's seeing in terms of what we need to be looking at in terms of what's happening in the United States military, how we even got to this point. And guys, when I talk about being able to push back darkness, it's concepts just like what he's talking about, just like what Matthew is talking about in this interview, is there are hills that are worth dying on, right? And this is one of them. Because the United States of America and who we are, the fabric of who we are as a people is at risk. And if you're listening to this in another country, which we really appreciate all of our listeners that are outside the United States, this affects you directly as well. You've seen this with COVID. You've seen this with other things happening in your government. It's incredibly, incredibly important. So I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Matthew Lohmeyer, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Kyle, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you on the show because, you know, we talked a few months ago whenever I became aware of you and your story and all that, and we're going to get into a lot of detail into, you know, the Space Force and the story and kind of the whole nine yards. There's a lot to talk about today, but I want to start off generically because anytime I talk to a U.S. military member or even retired on the show, I'm always curious as to why you joined the military because that's, for me personally, it's one of my biggest regrets that I never actually served this country in that way. It's just not the way the cookie crumbled, but for you specifically, why did you join the military? Why, why did you go the Air Force route and then specifically going through the Air Force Academy? I went the Air Force route because they're the ones that recruited me to play basketball at the Air Force Academy, in fact. Uh, had the best games of my life in high school uh, when the Air Force Academy recruiters came to watch. Some of the worst games of my life when some of the other universities came to watch. <laughs> 
that I was hoping to go uh, to. And it turned out that um, Air Force Academy had taken great interest early on. And so for the first time in my life, I actually considered joining the military. It's, uh, I don't have a military background in my family. One uh, uncle who uh, flew C-141s and some other aircraft uh, for the Air Force and is, is a retired lieutenant colonel. My grandfather served briefly during the Korean War. And uh, besides that, uh, I had no impetus to join the military except for the fact that I was recruited to play basketball. And so I went there, uh, I could say on a basketball scholarship, but everyone who gets into the service academies gets in the same way. They get a nomination from a congressman. Uh, they get appointed by the academy to join. And so I did just that. And it was while I was there that I actually got an incentive flight in a T-38. It's the fighter jet trainer aircraft. And it totally changed uh, the trajectory of my desires within the service. And so I ended up going to pilot training after I graduated flying jets myself. Uh, so that answers why I joined, in fact, and uh, why I joined the Air Force. It doesn't answer the question of why I stayed or why I became interested. And that's kind of an evolving story over time. But um, uh, I took basketball less and less seriously over time and the military very slowly, incrementally, more and more seriously uh, with each passing year. Yeah, so that's that's a very important story because I think most people don't really understand how people get into the academies. And so I actually had a friend that got appointed to the Naval Academy, so I'm at least somewhat familiar, but most people aren't. So that's that's awesome. You spent 14 years in the Air Force, and that was before you transferred over to the Space Force. Now, right. the thing is, is the Space Force, as you well know, has been the butt of a bunch of jokes, and it was during <laughs> the Trump administration. So people hate Trump, so they think the Space Force is this gigantic joke, but it is an, an actual part of our United States military force. And so I guess give us a little bit of an idea as to kind of what the space force is. Cause you were one of those early people to join in, you know, kind of explain it to the, the stupid American public that doesn't really understand. I'll say ignorant. So I can't mm -hmm. be too mean. And then how did you specifically get involved in terms of, you know, switching over from air force to space force? Yeah. A lot of good questions in there. Uh, I'll say up front that the space force, although Trump would have perhaps in the moment that he said it, like the American people to believe otherwise was not his idea. Uh, <clears throat> the, the idea of a separate military service that would steward all things space has been around for a few decades, a couple of decades at least. Uh, there have been early advocates even before that. Uh, it's not a Republican idea or a Democrat idea. It's in fact had bipartisan support for many years before uh, President Trump had taken office. Uh, now, to his credit, he grabbed a hold of the idea and his vice president, Mike Pence, was uh, a staunch supporter of all things space and took great interest in space. And so that presidency was the perfect administration to make Space Force a reality. Uh, the Air Force traditionally has been responsible for our military space operations. Everything we've done from the GPS signal on your phone, the blue dot everyone follows, that's a free service that's provided by young 19 and 20 and 21 year old uh, airmen uh, at Shriver Air Force Base. Um, and so a lot of mission sets like that, my, my particular specialty within space was space-based missile warning. Those mission sets were uh, under the purview of the major command called Air Force Space Command, but they fell under the Department of the Air Force. And when we stood up a new branch of the military in December of 2019 during the Trump administration, 
most of, if not nearly all of those uh, operational mission sets just kind of naturally transitioned into the new service. Uh, it was rather transparent to those military service members in uniform who were actually doing the job day in and day out, night in and night out. Uh, and frankly, uh, invisible to some of the American people who largely don't pay attention to this kind of thing. Funny story, I've moved to Idaho. Uh, I love Idaho. Uh, I found uh, a gym that I like to attend and I go into this gym. It's kind of grungy, there's chalk uh, nearly every 10 or 15 feet, the kind of gym I like to, to go to. And they've got a wall that has the flags of each of our, our branches of the military uh, hanging on the wall. And I noticed there was no Space Force flag. So I went up to the front and I said, hey, you guys ought to consider getting a Space Force flag in your gym. And the girl that was behind the counter looked at me like, is that a joke? Because it's not even a funny one. And I said, no, it's a real thing. It's been around for nearly two years now. And she thought I was joking. So she had to Google it and find out that even, in fact, there is a branch of the military called the Space Force. Uh, the only thing people have heard about it is Stephen Carell's new Space Force show uh, that I hear is a flop. Uh, I've not even watched it. So, um, but yeah, I, I spent, like you said, uh, over 15, or 14 years in the Air Force. I flew jets. I was a T-38 instructor pilot. Then I flew F-15Cs, single-seat air-to-air fighters, uh, before I made a transition into the Air Force space community. And when I came over into that community, I did space-based missile warning. Uh, which we do in Colorado. And uh, after that, had a unique opportunity uh, that'll be of interest to your viewer, I'm sure, to uh, be the aide-de-camp. It's essentially a personal assistant that travels with four-star generals. Uh, and I was the aide-de-camp for the guy in charge of all of space uh, for the Air Force, General Jay Raymond. And um, we traveled the world together to our various space operating locations. And I got to sit in on many conversations uh, in 2000. 18, I guess it was, about the creation of this new branch of the military. And here, the uh, naysayers and the proponents of such an idea. And uh, like we mentioned earlier, even though the Trump administration suggested it, I think they took some people by surprise, it ended up getting congressional bipartisan support. That's why it became a new branch of the military. The president has no authority to create a new branch of the military. It has to be written into law. It was written into Title X. Uh, and uh, it became law that that's a new branch of the military. That's something Congress has to accomplish, which they did. Uh, since then, the new branch of the military stood up, and because of my job, I was naturally transferred in to the new service, uh, went for a short season to get a master's degree at the Defense Department's Premier Strategy School, and then came back to be uh, in command of a space-based missile warning unit in Colorado, which is kind of where perhaps the meat of our conversation will will take off from, but it was me in Colorado for the past year in command of a, a missile warning unit. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that how you put it, because obviously this was an idea. This was a, uh, something that people were talking about before Trump. But as with everything, Trump has his own gravitational force. And so if he mentions right. it, he loves when people focus on him and everyone loves to hate him. So, But but yeah, you're right in that that gives us kind of a good jumping off point. Because the reason why you're even on anyone's radar, no pun intended, is that you were relieved of command. So you were in charge of the 11th Space Warning Squadron. Correct. But on May the 15th of 2021, you were relieved of your command. And that is when, you know, people were like, wait a minute, Space Force is actually a thing. But wait a minute, why did this guy just get kicked out? And then it became this whole story. And there's a lot of details to go into. And we'll certainly go into the book that I'm sure aided in this decision. But from your best recollection in a Sparknotes version, what happened? Why were you relieved of command? Spark Notes version, that's tough. 
<laughs> I haven't yeah, dialed I, in I've, a spark notes version yet. So that's why I like podcasts and long form interviews. Let me tell you, uh, Cliff's notes. Uh, I wrote a book called irresistible revolution, uh, that talks about, uh, Mark, the Marxist revolutionary impulse that has even unfortunately, uh, begun to infect our military institutions. I did a podcast to talk about that book. Uh, it was actually about a week later, and it was Friday afternoon, May 14th, that I found out that I was relieved of command. And the following morning, the date you mentioned, the 15th, is when it, it hit the national press. Not because I shared it with the press, but because the uh, I assume it was Space Force Public Affairs decided it was important to leak that story to the national press uh, to preempt anything I might share uh, with with the press about what had happened. Uh, and in that press release with, uh, I think it was military.com news, mm -hmm. uh, the Space Force indicated that because they had lost their trust and confidence in my ability to lead others, they had to relieve me of my command. From that time forward, I was still an active duty lieutenant colonel. I just was relocated to another office on the base in which I did uh, very little and awaited adjudication for three months of some outcome regarding my potential career moving forward. I mean, they didn't communicate anything with me after that point. I, I was left to counsel with my attorney, who is a civilian attorney and an Air Force appointed judge advocate general and attorney from the Air Force about what my steps should be moving forward. So I did a lot of podcasts and a lot of TV interviews trying to be as respectful as I could, but simply drawing attention to these ideas that I think are undermining the good order and discipline and unit cohesion of our forces in the military, uh, which we'll get into. Yeah, we will certainly get into that a little bit more. But I even remember, Matthew, when you and I first spoke, this was well before you decided to get out and actually retire. And because we were going to actually do this before your retirement date. And we're like, ah, we'll save it. We've got to save it because we want to make sure you can say all the juicy stuff. But were you under, kind of take us through that whole process of you actually deciding to retire because you could have stuck it out as it were. You could have just tried to figure it out. Maybe you would have been adjudicated and things would have got figured out, even though we both pretty much know that wasn't really a possibility. But, you know, why even have those discussions? Why even work your way through that system? And I guess, why did you just decide like, no, nah, I just need to retire and get out? Okay, so I hope we'll get into some of the background. Uh, we will a little bit later, but there's a lot that happened leading up to my decision to separate from the military. And I'll correct one thing you said just for clarity. And uh, my dad says the same thing too. He calls me retired Lieutenant Colonel, which I appreciate but I'm a separated former Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, I requested from the secret then acting secretary of the air force, John Roth, an early retirement package. Uh, I'd served over 15 years honorably, uh, had a good record and uh, requested that they would approve, which it seemed to me and my attorney that they had in their power to do, uh, to approve that early retirement. Well, that was denied. And, uh, I, and they agreed to separate me and and relieve me of my active duty service commitment, which I still had remaining, uh, which was another couple of years. And I agreed to voluntarily separate. Um, and the proximate or immediate uh, reason I found that that was in my own best interest and perhaps even in the best interests of the military uh, at the moment was because I was I was really uh, not being used for very much at all. I spent three months, like I, I mentioned, 
waiting to hear something either from the Air Force Inspector General's office about a supposed investigation that was underway or word in a phone call or an email from my chain of command explaining what they understood about my future. Uh, instead, I had a whole bunch of conversations with congressmen in, in D.C. Uh, both senators and, uh, and congressmen were very helpful. Uh, they wrote letters on my behalf advocating that I be reinstated in command. Uh, and, you know, I, frankly, I think the Air Force leadership or the Defense Department, was, was they put themselves in a very tough spot. Uh, you fire someone hastily, alleging that they're a politically partisan hack, which I'm not. Uh, now, I am conservative. Uh, but I didn't care what people's politics were in the military, unlike some of the leaders whom, against whom I was filing complaints who were political activists. Uh, they allege that I'm a politically partisan threat somehow and that I've done something wrong, and they start to look into the matter and find out that I've not done anything wrong. Uh, they read my book, I assume, as a part of their three-month investigation and decide, well, shoot, there's nothing we can get this guy on. I mean, he didn't share names. He didn't criticize his chain of command. He didn't criticize the current administration. How do you punish that? Well, you don't. And so they sat there hoping that something in the world perhaps would happen that would distract attention from all of this so that they could make a decision about how to reintegrate me into the workforce. Meanwhile, my wife and I and family lived on a military base uh, with the exception of a couple of people during that three-month period. I mean, my wife essentially lost contact with the military community. People are afraid to, uh, to talk with the family uh, who has been in the national press. They're afraid to get the stain of politics on them. They're afraid to get in trouble by being seen with uh, either me or my wife. Uh, my own airmen were afraid to talk to me uh, from my former unit that I had, uh, that I had led because they were counseled uh, not to, frankly. And so it was a very uncomfortable position for my family. Now we're happy about the decision that we made to separate. It, meant, it means I lost a pension, uh, but um, I plan to work hard and make a living and uh, do podcasts and go public speaking. And I have a lot of public speaking engagements lined up here for the next four months or so. And so uh, we're doing okay. And I don't regret my decision at all. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad because, you know, most of the people, they'll just stick it out, whether it's a military thing or in some sort of law enforcement, they'll stick it out just to kind of get that magical pension. But I know it's kind of a leap of faith to, to take off and do your own thing. And so I commend you for that because you did what you thought was right. And I, I certainly hope that you do make up and far exceed what you would have got with your pension. But, you know, you've mentioned it several times and I have as well, but let's go ahead and dig into Irresistible Revolution. So that is the name of the book that you released that you self-published earlier this year. So it's an Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military. And so even just that title is going to be very, very important and very, very, you know, I guess it's red meat for the people that listen to this podcast. But mm. for you specifically, why did you decide to name it Irresistible Revolution? And I, I guess... Why write a book tackling the subjects that you do, you know, Marxism mm -hmm. and its influence in the U.S. military while still in the U.S. military? So the first question I'll answer is the title, Irresistible Revolution. Second, I'll, I'll address is uh, why do that while I'm active duty? Um, that one's going to take a short answer and a long answer, that second question. Uh, irresistible Revolution is uh, a phrase that I borrowed from one of the founders, uh, co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Uh, Janiyah Future Khan. Uh, Janiyah Khan said that the role of the artist 
is to make the revolution, the Marxist revolution, irresistible. The role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. Well, one good way to do that is to come up with an irresistible slogan like Black Lives Matter, because what good American or decent human disagrees with that? They don't. And no one disagrees with that, despite all the finger pointing and accusations flying around in the country at the moment. Uh, admit, admit you're a racist, otherwise you've proven you're one. I mean, this kind of nonsense uh, is all over our university campuses, and unfortunately it's showing up in our military at the moment, uh, in our diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, which we'll get more into. So that's where the title of the book comes from. Now the subtitle, uh, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military is necessarily purposefully provocative. Uh, it needed to catch people's attention because as I indicate uh, in my book, uh, this will prove our undoing if we don't get this stuff in check. You don't divide uh, your military forces into black and white, into racial identity politics uh, groups and hope that they'll maintain their trust and that you won't undermine uh, unit cohesion. You just can't do that. And yet that's what our senior military leaders have been doing this past calendar year. It's disgusting. And so that had to be addressed. Now, here's, here's why I did it. I had studied Marxism a great deal uh, in, the, in the couple of years leading up to my writing of the book. Uh, my sense was that there were probably a handful of people scattered here and there that perhaps understood both Marxist ideology and Marxist history and the history of Marxist revolutions within the military who could then connect it to everything that was going on and who were in the military and saw what was happening at the ground level in our diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. I was a commander. I don't expect my young airmen to step forward and do this. First off, they probably hadn't studied it. Uh, you mentioned Marxism to them, it might not mean anything. Uh, the older generation, I think it means a great deal to. They lived through the Cold War, at least the end of the Cold War. Um, <clears throat> so you, you mentioned words like Marxism, communism, you start to lose people pretty quickly. Um, uh, Black Lives Matter, well, that'll get people's attention because it's uh, because of its proximity. We saw a lot of destruction in this country in 2020 by Antifa and Black Lives Matter uh, and very little accountability. Uh, so <clears throat> the reason I wrote it is because I think there's plenty of people outside of the military who have the know-how to put this together, but they didn't have the insight on what was going on on the inside. And so I thought, boy, there's this perfect confluence of circumstances, uh, specifically, I'm in the military and see what's happening. I've got airmen and guardians, what we call ourselves in the Space Force, coming to me and complaining about the fact that they're losing trust in one another. They're losing trust in the, uh, in the, uh, the leadership. They're skeptical of one another based on race because they're being trained to believe certain people are racist, certain people are oppressors, others are oppressed. Uh, and so sitting where I sat, I thought, well, frankly, there's really no other option. Um, now, if you'll let me, and we don't need to move on, I want to expound on that just a minute. Go for it. Absolutely. Now, a smart person will probably listen to what I just said and think, well, dude, use your chain of command and talk to someone about it. Uh, file a formal complaint. Well, happy to inform you I did. Uh, so beginning in probably June or June is when I showed up at my base. July is when I took command in 2020. And in the months of June and July, I received probably 19 emails, I think was the number, from base leadership, 
talking about white supremacy, white extremism, and systemic racism. Uh, absolutely a distraction from what we should be focused on. We started to have down days in which we'd set aside our real world operational training missions and we'd focus on discussing oppression, racial oppression, uh, and how you have unconscious biases uh, and they were, tended to be focused on the white male. Uh, you have unconscious implicit biases. Uh, you might not recognize it, hence the, <laughs> hence the word implicit or unconscious, uh, but you need to disabuse yourselves of those and admit your guilt. And if you don't, then you're a big part of the problem. Uh, and so if you need to center your feelings as a white human, uh, go find another white person to talk to. Don't, don't make people of color uh, bear your burden. Uh, that's not my words. That's the words in one of our training sessions that I participated in. Uh, that's absolutely unacceptable in our military. And to speak up about it and say, hey, 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 I disagree with this, is to be labeled politically partisan, which should alarm your listeners, your viewers. The bottom line is um, I started to complain about this in conversations with my chain of command. I started with my immediate supervisor, who's an 06. I then reached out to the uh, general officer in charge of the entire Space Force. We had a conversation about it. And each of them thanked me for bringing up these issues. Uh, thank you so much. This is really important. We can't have this. We'll see if we can have some change. Well, guess what? President Trump issued an executive order on the 22nd of September. And he banned critical race theory and critical race theory jargon vocabulary that essentially demonizes the country as white supremacist, as systemically racist. He, he, he banned language in our federal agencies that would teach white people that they need to admit for their guilt, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was really helpful. And a bunch of people in the military breathed a sigh of relief. Uh, at my base, the base leadership illegally pursued diversity training programs by pushing it down to a lower level at the squadron level, asking various officers who were interested in being activists to host reading groups, to continue to, to read authors like Igeoma Oluo and others, uh, or Robin D'Angelo, uh, who write all about the terrible white person problem we've got in this country. It was very left in its politics too. It tells you which uh, left-leaning organizations you're able to donate your monies to, for example, if you're not sure where to donate your money to. It tells you which left-leaning politicians you should be voting for based on what policies they support. It's politically partisan is the point. The politically partisan BS doesn't belong in our military. It's not what we do. Uh, we can let civilians argue about that kind of stuff. So I file a formal inspector general's office complaint, which is fielded by a three-star named Stephen Whiting. And he sat on that complaint through November, December, and January until January 6th Capitol riot happened. And then I received a note in the mail the following day on the 7th, essentially dismissing my complaint uh, didn't thank me one bit, didn't reach out to me and ask what kind of uh, impact this was having on the morale of my unit, which is his primary obligation, by the way, uh, just as it is mine. Uh, and the same day that the base, the same day I received that letter dismissing my complaint after sitting on it for three months and not interviewing any one of the 24 witnesses I had listed, uh, the base commander was promoted to his first star, and he was the primary activist in all of this. Uh, now, the climate of fear that we've created politically uh, disincentivizes people from speaking up boldly. And it apparently has even disincentivized our senior military leaders from holding people responsible or accountable 
when they get politically active if they're a leftist or if they're black or if they're gay. So we've, we've got a really big problem when we apply a double standard to our force because it's a great way to undo the trust that our military service members have in their leadership. So I wrote a book. Uh, I tried my chain of command. I tried to file a formal inspector general's complaint to no effect. And if a lieutenant colonel who's uh, in command can't get bend the ear of his uh, senior leaders and affect any change, no one can. Because uh, they're always talking about how important the squadron level is and how our squadron commanders are the ones that actually lead our entire service. If I can't do anything about it, guarantee you Airman Snuffy, who's 20 years old, can't do anything about it. So that's why I wrote the book. Well, I think that's an important distinction that you're making, not only because you're being called a partisan hack whenever it's the partisan hacks. It's it's the, what is it, the expression like the kettle calling pot black or something like that. It's like, it's one of those ridiculous situations and scenarios. But then also it's good that you did use your chain of command because you don't seem like this rogue guy that's just like, okay, I'm going to go to Newsmax or Fox News and try to blow right. up the military and do all this craziness. But uh, there was a quote from the intro of the book that I think is very important. And guys, just as an aside, you're going to have to go get Irresistible Revolution yourself. You're going to have to read it because we're going to be barely scratching the surface on a lot of these subject matters, but we do want to kind of give you a good overall glance to just at least get you interested in that. But this is a quote from the intro here. This book is my best effort to participate in that concerted effort to better educate ourselves and our people about the scope of the problem of dangerous ideologies that threaten to undermine our nation, our constitution, and our way of life, and to stand up for our young service members whom I lead and serve. And so I think that that was a great way to kind of thrust us into the overall book, which we're going to be going through the three different parts of the book. So part one is the greatness of the American ideal. Part two is Marxism's goal of conquest. And then the last part is the unmaking of America's military. And so specifically, and again, there's there's way too much to go into here, but there's another quote that I want to read that's actually from part one, the greatness of the American ideal, and it's this. There is a struggle over the meaning of America presently underway that is at the heart of a social and political polarization that threatens to permanently fracture American civil society. That struggle is fueled by radical revisions of American history that are more ideological than historical, and by the proliferation of false narratives intent on breeding contempt for America's heritage and national identity. Now, there's a lot in there. And in that section, you go into the 1619 Project, you go into kind of this crazy dystopian 1984 style, you know, uh, flushing of history and kind of rewriting of stories and all that. But can you give us a good overall view as to why the greatness of the American ideal is being attacked right now? Hmm. Interestingly, I wrote that section of the book last. That's the very beginning of the book. And it was, uh, to me, very important that I get that section right. Um, I knew the problem that I needed to write about, which was critical race theory, our diversity, equity, and inclusion industry, which was essentially dividing our military, dividing us up into race, identity, pol you know, political groups. So I write that stuff. And I'm thinking, what is this all countering? What is this trying to undo? Why is it so important that we divide people into groups it, it, it tries to deliberately unmake everything about America's founding. And so I, I decided, you know, it's, and what I mean by that is that we've got these founding principles that we believe in. Uh, perhaps foremost among them is the inherent worth of every individual. It's a very Christian idea, Judeo-Christian idea. Uh, and the founders believed in that, and it's what made our country terrifically successful. It's, it's what paved the way for the ending of slavery. Uh, and... <clears throat> There, there's not been in human history uh, a more successful multiracial 
nation. In fact, most countries haven't been multiracial in human history. Um, <clears throat> the founding principles that we believe in are under attack, ironically, while employing the language of justice and fairness and equality, now equity, um, freedom. Again, people who employ that language and change the definitions are trying to make the revolution irresistible because who doesn't agree with those ideals? Now, the trouble is people get very confused about, about these words and people mean very different things by them. So, yeah, getting back to part one of the book, which I wrote last, I thought I need to tee up for the reader. And I had the young service member in mind who perhaps um, half paid attention in high school to their history classes and then joined the military. And they're now 19 years old, 20 years old. I thought in two chapters, I'd like to explain to them what it is about the founding of our country, our founding documents and the founding ideals that they need to grab a hold of and cherish. And so that they can begin to understand exactly what is being lost with our current ideological push to divide people into racial identity groups, if that makes sense. So I begin with the greatness of the American ideal by talking about just how it's transformed the world. I talk about how it's come under attack by tracing through the New York Times 1619 project, the, the project's lead essayist, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a who went to Cuba to study their communist education and healthcare systems, then came back and has spent the last decade of her life bashing America. And she's the lead essayist on a New York Times project that essentially tries to rewrite American history from ideological perspective. Oh, you weren't founded in 1776. You're founded in 1619 when slaves came over. And I address that stuff in the book. And I mean, that too has come under bipartisan ridicule. Didn't matter people's politics. Scholars on the left and the right have come out and said, that 1619 project isn't history. It's false. Uh, it's got a lot of ideologically based vignettes that try to recast all of American history. Uh, and so I want to address that. And here's the primary reason why I thought it would be a hard hitter. Uh, I thought first of my own airman at my own base who had, had been sent two videos by the base commander that were very left leaning in their political bent and who are teaching 1619 project ideology, uh, teaching that our country's foundings were absolutely racist and that the reason we had the American revolution was to secure white supremacy as the law of the land. Uh, all the fluff in the declaration of independence, that's just all propaganda according to these videos and it's a lie. So you've got these young service members who have just sworn an oath to defend the constitution and potentially lay their neck on the chopping block for it at some point. They, they, they commit their flesh to, to the country and they're being taught to hate the founding, the founding principles and the very country that they serve. They're taught that within the ranks uh, roam a bunch of secretive white supremacists. They're taught that uh, uh, that's our greatest threat to national security at the moment by the current administration, white supremacy and white extremism. And they're, ta they're taught that our founders weren't decent men, they're racists. I mean, now, in every one of these accusations lie some kernels of historical fact that you're able to weave together into a critical accusation of, of America's history. And so it has some staying power. And But these young people are learning American history for the first time through a very leftist lens. And in fact, it's a Marxist lens. And it's been written in a way to undermine our trust and faith in our country uh, so that you can begin to hate it. If you begin to hate it, why would you serve your military? Why would you serve in the police force? Why would you... Why would you serve this country at all? In fact, you might end up joining the revolutionary cause that seeks to burn it all down. 
So as that is injected into our military, I thought it's really important for me to begin writing the book by explaining where some of these narratives that they're hearing in the military are coming from. They're coming from left-wing ideologues. And so that's, that's kind of where we start off at the beginning of the book. I think it's a very helpful place to start off because in the one story that absolutely sticks out in my mind is you talked about a black cadet from West Point that was having some consternation about the fact that they're going to be serving this country that West Point has taught them is horribly racist. And they're like, wait a minute, like I'm going to be a black army officer that is in a white supremacist system. I'm going to be perpetuating this. And he was kind of having an attack of conscience. And that's what's being created within the military. But also this is a nefarious thing because the 1619 Project is being accepted into school districts. Thousands of school districts now Mm -hmm. are teaching that to children. And again, they're dumb. They're underdeveloped monkeys, essentially, right? So they're seven, eight, nine, 10, 15 years old, whatever the situation is. And they're just, they're taking this as like, okay, I've never heard anything else. So this must be it. And that's their paradigm. And you know, just like anybody else, undoing a paradigm is way more difficult Mm -hmm. than just solidifying one. And so I'm glad that you went into all that detail in the first part of the book in, in in terms of the greatness of the American ideal. But then in the second part, that's where the rubber really starts to meet the road because you're talking about Marxism's goal of conquest. And I thought it was absolutely perfect how you started that section. You started out with a a quote from, it's one of my favorite quotes from Sun Tzu, and it's this. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And the reason why I really like that, Matthew, is because I talk to a lot of people, because you mentioned earlier, you know, you mentioned Marxism or communism and people just kind of tune out or they don't understand people that are learned people, people that are in the know, you will mention things like postmodernism or Marxism or critical race theory, and they know they should probably not like it, but they don't know exactly why. And, and it's this nefarious thing to where it's like, how can you fight back against that? Specifically in the church, pastors will not talk about this for the most part, right? Yeah, I mean, I find some few and far between that'll talk about these things specifically through a Marxist lens, but it's like, guys, how are you going to let the flock know who the enemy is? That's We know that we win in the end, which is great, but how do we fight and push back darkness now? And so I'm not exactly sure the, the best way to do this, so I'll kind of let you, you kind of go with it mm-hmm. because I kind of want you to you know, define postmodernism for us, define Marxism, define critical race theory, but then we're going to be here until, you know, Saturday, if, if you really dig into all that, but really just kind of give us an overview of Marxism's goal of, of conquest and how really that's kind of tied in with the postmodernism and how a downstream result is critical race theory. I know that was like the worst setup possible, but I know you can take it and run with it. That, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of, um, lead-ins there on ramps. And so I'm going to pick a couple and uh, get running. Let me mention a couple things here real quick. Um, I'm going to point your listener to uh, a couple different sources um, that may be helpful uh, and perhaps even more helpful than what I can share in a few minutes. Just this morning on my way into work, I posted uh, a new video on my Facebook account. Uh, I don't know what my Facebook handle even is. Look at Matthew Lohmeyer. You'll see a picture of me. Um, Something like uh, Matthew Lohmeyer with a 92 after it, I think. Uh, All right, sounds good. Christopher Rufo has done tremendous work um, in the past year plus explaining carefully, methodically, uh, and in a basic way what it is exactly that critical race theory is. And I just posted a video this morning. I think it's 15 to 18 minutes. It is about as succinct. I mean, 
you can spend some time reading my book, which you should do, and you can watch an 18-minute video, and you'll come away with a really good appreciation at a, at a broad uh, sweep what it is that we're looking at here with critical race theory and why it is that it's so dangerous uh, to our I won't just say our way of life. I know that can be criticized as well, not by your viewer, but by, I'll say to Western society, to Judeo-Christian values, uh, it seeks to undermine all of that. And um, it's, it's Marxist revolution repackaged into race identity politics. It's state-sanctioned racial divisions and segregation. Uh, and <clears throat> so I will get in to answer your question. I'll also just point your, your viewer to uh, MatthewLohmeyer.com. Uh, the website's kind of being rebuilt at the moment, uh, but uh, that was my initial attempt at putting some information online, both about the book as well as some, I've got links to some interviews that I've done in the past where I kind of start to talk talk through these, uh, these very ideas. So I want to point your viewer to those things. Um, and since we've got a, perhaps a somewhat biblically uh, inclined audience. Let me let me point out one thing that I don't normally get to on Newsmax or Fox News or various shows. Um, and I think it helps anchor our discussion a bit and the kind of influence we're dealing with. Um, in the opening pages of the Bible, you've got a story that everyone's kind of sort of familiar with, but they need to read again. And it's the story of Cain and uh, the slaying of his brother Abel. Okay. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but I want to point you to the story. Go look at the context in which the murder occurs. Go take a look at the injustice that is felt and whispered in his ear by an adversary. He essentially becomes angry. He feels like he's been dealt with unjustly because the God of heaven, who he claims to worship but doesn't love, is dissatisfied with his sacrifice. And he has this adversary come and whisper in his ear that you've been dealt with unjustly, you've been treated unfairly, you can use violence to take what rightly belongs to you, which is the, the flocks of his brother falling into his hands. So he then goes and it begins with a conversation with his brother, and it ends in his, the slaying of his brother. Uh, it was a peaceful protest, they say, and, and the, they, they start to engage in shouting in the streets, and the shouting always serves its purpose, and that's to get the blood boiling so that people end up becoming violent. That's what these protests have been about this past, this past year. But look at the impulse that, that you see. See if you can pull that out of the text when you go back and read it. The influence that is born of the father of lies is that you are oppressed unjustly by an oppressor. Uh, I'm using Marxist language now. And if you use violence, you can fix the problem. Okay, I'm putting it very simply now. It doesn't say exactly what I'm saying. But last year, as I watched people talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, about the protests, about how they were justified, and even some of our Democrat politicians were trying to justify the violence by saying, well, well they're justified. They're justified. They've been wronged. Uh, that's not a good way to solve your societal problems. That's certainly not a good way to keep civil society together. In fact, we learned from the very beginnings of the Bible story, it's a great way to disrupt the nuclear family, which is one of Black Lives Matter's stated aims, by the way, mm -hmm. disruption of the nuclear family. It's a great way to disrupt government. And the government God had established in the beginning, uh, that was Satan's first attempt to utterly disrupt and destroy what God was doing on the earth. So if you look, if you believe like me that our, our country's foundings were divinely inspired, 
they were intended to protect the liberty of man. And our belief in this in Western society is that the purpose of governments is to secure individuals' liberty and to protect them. Uh, everything you see taking place in society at the moment is attempting to undo man's free will, disrupt their liberties, destroy the nuclear family, and indoctrinate them into a way of thinking that gets them to feel they're justified in using violence against their neighbor. Okay, so I hope I hope that your viewer will pay attention to that. You go back and look at the entire Bible with that lens, and you'll see that uh, the adversary of mankind has been afoot since the beginning trying to plant these ideas, and it's a common thread throughout history. And so that's why, now getting to your question, in part two of my book, I start with uh, the Bavarian Illuminati in the century uh, leading up to Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Because I want to show that it's not just this guy, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who write the 1848 Communist Manifesto that then set the world on fire. Uh, it's actually a tradition, a philosophical, ideological uh, inheritance that they have that I think is influenced by the same spirit that they are harking back to and, and attempting to set down in writing in order to generate violent revolutions. What I mean by that is I start with the Illuminati who have, as I stated in my book in part two, uh, and by the way, it's important for, for your listener, if they've not read my book, to perhaps, I say this in my book as well, suspend their judgment when they hear words like Illuminati. I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, okay? This is an actual historical organization that existed in modern-day Germany and earlier Bavaria, uh, and they had, it was a secret society. They had aims to disrupt the governments of the earth. Uh, now that name or title, the Illuminati, has been usurped and reused and abused by many people and many movies, many authors. Nevertheless, I start there because there's a common thread that emerges from the 1700s in various people's writings and in the revolutionary efforts throughout Europe in Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto in 1848, but it's repackaged. And as your viewer is aware, Marx and Engels focus on essentially class antagonisms, the, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. There's a working class who is oppressed unjustly, and there is a ruling class, the capitalist. And uh, as soon as the proletariat is able to appreciate just how oppressed they are, they're going to they're gonna band together into a little uh, coalition, and they're going to rise up violently, and they're going to overthrow the ruling class and establish a new order. And therefore, the world will be peaceful after that. You won't have class conflict, which is totally false. Uh, you'll just have a new oppressive ruling class, essentially, but uh, or one that has got their way to power by violence, uh, which you can only keep by violence and tyranny, by the way. And Friedrich Engels admits that in the in the 19th century. So what they do in the 19th century with the Communist Manifesto has been redone in the last century, in the 20th century, in the West, to pit races against each other. Uh, because in the West, the middle class was thriving and Marxists were sure that you wouldn't be able to foment violent revolution in the West uh, by getting the working class to rise up against their bosses. It just wasn't going to happen. And so you needed a different narrative. Well, so they recraft Marxism uh, into what becomes known later on, and I'm skipping way ahead, but this critical race theory. Uh, <coughs> critical race theory insists that well, we've already covered it essentially, but that the, that the founding of this country in particular is racist, uh, it's unjust, and it has kept uh, the white in a position of power over the black uh, 
even to the present day, and that our society is deserving of a violent revolution. And I'm putting it very bluntly because that's essentially what the aim is. Uh, and it will even go so far as to criticize uh, the aims of Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision. I mean, the idea that we should judge people based on their character, not the color, uh, the content of their character, not the color of their skin, uh, that is not a worthy aim to the critical race theorist or scholar. Uh, and surprisingly, even Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, vision for a colorless society is now under attack in our military, of all things. I mean, we're unified by the uniform that we wear. Uh, we bleed the same color, some of our congressmen have recently said. When you join up, race goes by the, the door side, uh, the, by the wayside. And when there's a Kabul or Afghanistan crisis unfolding, the last thing on earth we're going to talk about is race politics. Give me, that's the last thing on earth that matters. Real lives are on the line. And so we've been wasting our breath for the past calendar year at least and talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion when we should have been preparing to face real-world threats. And now that's abundantly clear, and the current administration has come under bipartisan scrutiny uh, because we've, been, we've had misaligned priorities. Well, I think that's an important point that you bring up there at the end, because these people that were hanging on to the planes in Afghanistan, and I mentioned this in a previous podcast, they weren't hanging on to the planes because of systemic, you know, racial oppression. They weren't hanging on because of their student loan debt. They weren't hanging on because they couldn't say what gender that they felt inside. And the thing is, is that's a byproduct. That's a downstream result. What we're living in right now, this milieu that we're living in right now is a downstream result of things being really, really, really good. Right. You know, there's that that quote, you know, hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times. We got a bunch of weak men that are making hard times because we're making up crap to, to be um, angry about. You know, you've heard uh, Representative Dan Crenshaw talk about this. It's like we need struggle. And so we're just going to create it out of thin air if it doesn't actually exist. And another thing that, that kind of summarizes a lot of the points that you were making is a short quote from that section of the book from part two. It breeds a fearful mentality that insists others are out to get them, the wealthy, the police, institutions of higher learning, religious groups, or certain races. And I mean, you coalesced basically the entire news cycle from the end of 2019 until today in that one sentence, because you have these people that are bought into this worldview, this Marxist ideology that they can't even define themselves. But yes, it's the wealthy. Right. It's the rich. We've got to eat the rich. It's the police. They're hunting me. They're hunting me and my friends down. Institutions of higher learning. They don't want me to go to that school because it's going to you know, impose on their white supremacy. Religious groups. Oh, you don't want me to be able to kill my baby in Texas, uh, you know, which is going to be an infringement on my rights as a person. And obviously the race war, when you, when you look at people, when we're teaching children to look at their classmate by the color of their skin, by an immutable characteristic, something that they did not get to choose, something that they did not, you know, figure mm. out one day, I would like this amount of lev uh, level of melanin, please. And, but it really has its tendrils that go everywhere. And again, guys, you got to get that, that book almost for that section. That section is almost worth the price of admission, but it's the last section where the rubber really, really meets the road, even though I've used that expression already. And that's the unmaking of America's military. And this drives me absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. Because I think our military should be concerned with lethality. And that should be the number one priority and the seven priorities after that. And then we can get into some other priorities because if we're not lethal, we're basically just standing here. Right. Mm. But I guess just overall, take this wherever you want to go. Mm -hmm. Tell us how these ideologies, you've mentioned it a little bit prior to how these Marxist ideologies and worldviews, how they are directly impacting the United States military today. Go ahead and go more into that. Okay. So as a, as a recap, 
I'll say that, you know, the first part of my book talks about the greatness of the American ideal. The second part, but which, by the way, isn't politically partisan. Uh, unfortunately, everything has become about politics. Uh, under the uh, influence of the left. And I'll say the postmodernist, which we didn't get into. I'm not going to go back into that. I'm going to stay on point here. But you know, the postmodernist has politicized everything in this in this world. And that's a terrible burden for our military service members to shoulder. They know they're supposed to remain apolitical. That's their obligation. So when you politicize everything about their belief system and say that to, to disagree with various aspects of a training that are, that are imposed upon you by people who have a different value system than you do is political, that's an unfair burden that they shoulder. Well, don't, don't disagree with that. You get along, you shut up and you color. Otherwise, we're going to charge you with political partisanship. It's like, well, hold on a second. Like, I'm entitled to my beliefs as a U.S. service member. I don't lose that constitutional right when I join the service. Now, I, I do join a different justice system, essentially, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, but I do not lose the right to believe as I wish. I do not lose the right to free speech. I lose the right to criticize certain people. And so I wrote about the greatness of the American ideal. And then I write about, as we've covered, uh, the, the lineage of Marxist ideas that are the roots of what is known as critical race theory, uh, the race identity politics that we're seeing today. That shouldn't be politically partisan to discuss. I mean, it's essentially academic. When you, when you look, now, this is being pushed by leftists, and attacked by those on the right. But it's not politically partisan to address these things. I'm, I'm pointing this out because I was fired for being politically partisan. I don't mention Democrats versus Republicans. I mentioned the words a couple times in my book to make because, because it was important. But the point is, uh, there's nothing politically partisan about exposing Marxism. Marxist ideology is something we committed great blood and treasures uh, to during the Cold War. All of our service members were they lay their lives on the line to defend our way of life against that ideology. So that's part two of the book. Part three is where you're getting into where this unmaking of the American military, I trace through very specific examples of what I'm seeing in the service. And I start with uh, a conversation I actually had with a chaplain. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's an italicized vignette at the beginning of chapter five of the book, which is at the end of part two. But I, I mentioned that the chaplain, who was a very friendly black activist and Christian chaplain, by the way, wanted to give race in America lectures to my airmen. I said, well, I expressed some hesitancy at that. So I'd like to understand what it is that you'd like to share with them. So he came back another day and we had over an hour conversation. And what it came down to was that we need to fix systemic racism. And so he was going to offer ways we could do that. And I said, well, what do you mean by systemic racism? He says, uh, him, ha, him, ha. And I pressed him on it. And I said, no, I want to know what you think that means. And he says, it means that whites are racist. Okay. And I told him that view is not welcome in our military. And that, that to impugn guilt to people based on the color of their skin itself is racist. And so that's what really started to get me worried. That was very, very early on in my command tour. Okay. That chaplain was supported by a base commander 
who is black and an activist. I share that just for context. Uh, that's never mattered before last year, by the way. But <clears throat> he was very supportive of and pushing that agenda. In fact, I've never shared this publicly before. There are a number of civilians at that base who are waiting to share a private witness with the investigators who are supposed to come investigate the political activism that was going on at the base. And they never came. They were ready to share some of their private interactions with the space commander. Things like how he was holding up pictures of the Trump administration and asking his white civilian employees, what's wrong with this picture? And they'd say, uh, I don't know, you tell us. And he'd say, there's no black people. That's what's wrong with this picture. They're all white. He had a white female in his office who he said, you can't possibly understand what's going on in this country because of your white privilege. She pushed back and disagreed with him. Uh, he asked her to watch some propaganda videos that he, he had found on YouTube uh, over the weekend as homework. Uh, and then he said, no one at this base will disrupt or undermine the Black Lives Matter agenda. Now, this is a base commander whose job it is, it's, his job is the care and feeding of the people at his base. And he's feeding them political propaganda. And when someone speaks up and says, hey, that guy's a political activist, they lose their command. They get fired. Uh, that's me. Uh, and, and so people are afraid. You can't let people run around the military doing that kind of thing. It'll wreck everything. Oh, but that's exactly what we're allowing people to do. So starting there, and for probably 60 pages, I lay out example after example of things that are happening, uh, conversations I was having both in my office and with others at other bases uh, and from other services about why they were losing their desire to serve in the U.S. military. It's because everything's becoming political. They're being, if they're white, they're, they're tired of being told they're racist. If they're black, uh, they're tired of working for a racist. Uh, now, I'm going to be careful. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, and I'm actually not being careful, so I'm going to restate that. Regardless of race, there are different reasons why people are disagreeing with what's being taught. And there are black and white people who are conservative. There are black and white people who are not. And so, you know, regardless of race, there are people who take umption with what they're hearing. Okay? But I had a young black female in my office who said she'd never learned before she talked to the chaplain. She'd never learned before growing up that she was an outsider in her country and in uniform. I mean, this is the kind of stuff this is doing. So why would she want to keep serving for her whole life if she feels like an outsider? That's when you know we're off base, okay? And the fact that I try and draw attention to that in a book and get fired for it should tell every American listener that it's time to step up and defend our American troops from political activism. That's why Congressman Dan Crenshaw's uh, He's been doing good work with us. Senator Tom Cotton was very responsive. Uh, I was very grateful for his his um, advocacy um, and a number of other. There's a number of others that are getting uh, very concerned about when they hear this. And here's the problem. Uh, again, as a military person, I never cared what people's politics are. Not a single Democrat in the Congress was interested in stepping up to bat to root this out of our military. And I can't, for the life of me, figure out why that is. Uh, they didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. It's like, fine, we have policy disagreements. This isn't a politically partisan thing. You're, you're destroying our military. Who's going to defend the American people if our American troops are divided? Um, 
that this is that's why that's why it warranted a book i mean this is ter- this if you get thinking through these problems this has the potential to wreck everything you don't divide your military and your police forces and then hope to to maintain a safe society well the last the last two I guess, fronts that this war was going to be fought on, this war of wokeness, you could call, you know, Marxism's conquest was going to be, in my opinion, in my estimation, was business and military. Because the business sector, that was always the thing. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, you know, you got your purple hair and your nose rings when you're in college, but then you're going to have to get out and get a job, right, with your with your degree. And then you're going to get into the real world. You're going to start paying taxes and you're not just going to act this way anymore. But as we've seen over and over, these companies are more than willing to bend over and take it from right. these these young ideologues. And they're like, oh, Coca-Cola or, you know, Bank of America or any of these enormous brands, they are terrified of a few dozen nerds on Twitter saying something negative about their organization. And, and a quarter of those might be Russian bots for all we know, mm-hmm. right? I'll get comments on Instagram sometimes and then I'm like, this is, this is clearly not a real person. Like this is someone that's just trying to stir up the pot, especially right. if you talk about abortion or something like that. So that's a business side. But then the military side, I think this has caught everyone by surprise because at the end of the day, the military is going to be above this because they have to be right. We're we're in the business of destroying things and people that are just trying to destroy our things and our people. Right. But we're in this part now to where it's like, we we can't even operate with that paradigm because we have to fight the battle in terms of business. And now the military, which I think is very valuable, Matthew, because at the end of your book, you're not just describing. You do a lot of describing for a couple hundred pages plus. You describe what's going on. You do it in, in great detail, but you give a very, very quick call to action. So in chapter seven, it's called the wrath to come. You give the the reader or the, the listener these things to do. So avoid anger and violence, be courageous, get educated, speak up, live not by lies and pay attention. Okay. So avoiding anger and violence, there was a quick quote from that book. He said, patiently persuade them in thoughtful dialogue while remaining content with the idea that others believe differently than you. That's where I get really, really cynical because most people that believe this way don't want their, their (laughs) don't want to be challenged. I talk about all the time that, you know, I bring up the abortion issue or guns or immigration. These people want to be told how right they are. They want likes and retweets. They don't want discussion. And on the be courageous point, you said, let me interrupt you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Go on to be courageous in just a minute, but let me interrupt you about this. Don't get angry and and patiently persuade people. Right. Okay. So I agree with everything that I've written by way of recommendation at the end of this book. I'll say that up front. However, um, again, if you look at my recommendations, they are uh, in part a consequence of the context in which I found myself at the time I wrote the book, which was an active duty service member in command of a unit. And I wanted to make it abundantly clear, and I, I still do, I'm not advocating in any way, shape, or form that people should get violent to solve this problem, okay? In fact, um, that's exactly the hope of a Marxist revolutionary uh, who's... Now, the moment society becomes violent and start fighting civil conflict, civil war. That's the Marxist revolution. It's gotten underway. Now I I can have, I've had plenty of conversations about this with people. It, it is not possible to use logic and rationale and reason to talk through what you and I are discussing right now with an emotionally enraged ideologue. It's not possible. In fact, 
their emotion is so visceral, their hate and anger are so uh, manifest that they're not going to be reasoned with. Okay. Now, there are many good people, and this is why this recommendation, I think, still has merit. There are many good people in our circles who perhaps don't agree with your politics or your religious views and even sympathize with some of these revolutionary organizations or movements who simply yet remain uninformed and who are willing to engage in dialogue and who aren't yet emotionally wrapped up around the axle. And so I think that that piece of advice is potentially useful to help help some people wake up. And, and there are conservatives who recognize that things feel icky, they don't like what's going on, but they can't quite put the finger on it. You're going to help those people a great deal as you try and educate them and talk through some of this and persuade them. Because uh, there are people who pride themselves in being kind of centrist. Uh, well, I, I can see both sides. Well, guess what? Uh, you see, there, there are, in fact, two very polarized sides at the moment. There's no center position uh, in what we're talking about. <laughs> so you need to help people understand that. And so I think that's why that piece of advice is still valuable. Well, I think people, moderates, as they're called, or centrists, drive me absolutely insane because you can't be a centrist on abortion. You're either right. snuffing out an innocent human life or you're not. There's no, I can see both sides of the issue. That doesn't mean that you have to be black and white in all of your thinking, but to pretend as if you don't need to kind of stick your flag in the ground on one side or the other is absolutely foolish. But I think it's very important kind of, you're, you're bringing up the don't cast your pearls before swine scripture because you have these people that are rabid ideologues. They, they don't want to know if they're wrong and they don't want their opinion to be changed. But there are so many, I bring up the abortion issue again. There's so many people that don't even know what happens in mm. an abortion. But then they're showed a cartoon rendering by someone like live action, and they're shown this is what an abortion looks like. They're just on the street. They're like, yeah, I guess I'm pro-choice. We shouldn't be able to tell women what to do with their bodies. And then they see the reality of what an abortion is, and then they're like, oh, my goodness gracious, that's a baby in there. And they're ripping it limb from limb. That's insane. And so that's what I would like to, just like you, advocate for people to really have those conversations with people in the middle that are just flat out ignorant. That doesn't mean they're stupid. It means they're ignorant. They don't quite understand what's going on. And so again, avoid anger and violence. But you also talked about be courageous. I love the quote, do not be a cowardly summer soldier or a sunshine, sunshine patriot. There's a lot of people that are willing to do the sunshine, sunshine patriotism and kind of go that route. It, it just be, it becomes a big issue. But I do want to focus in as we kind of bring this to a close here, the pay attention side. So that's the last thing that you talked about in terms of the call to action, because a lot of people, I've said this a bunch, they were caught completely flat-footed by COVID and they were caught completely flat-footed when it became, they didn't know their mayor's name. They didn't know the names of the people on the school board. They didn't know the sheriff. They didn't know anybody that could have an impact on whether or not their business was closed as to whether or not their kid could go to school without a piece of cloth over their face mm -hmm. that doesn't actually do anything for them. And then these people, they're trying to like scurry and they're trying to figure out when the next election is. And it's like, you're just being flat footed because you weren't paying attention. But to my audience, you got a lot of guys that are, that are wanting to push back darkness. They're okay. wanting to know these things, but perhaps they're not readers. Perhaps they don't really like the news cycle because it stresses them out. How specifically, because you only give it, you know, short shrift in your book, but how specifically can we pay attention so that we can turn this into something actionable? Yeah, great question. So never before this past calendar year have I appreciated just how important it was to pay attention to local government, uh, local governance, who's elected to office, as, as you're mentioning. And I think it's important to bend their ear. 
you know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we just moved to a new state. It's, it's fairly, it's very conservative. And we picked a conservative town within that state. And I'll admit that uh, I paid very close attention to uh, political demographics of counties when I was picking a place to live. Uh, because what I, what I don't want to do is be told how to live every jot and tittle of my life for the rest of my life, right? So then we, then we show up to our new town, excited about the school district and all of this kind of thing. And we, we investigate before just dumping our, our new kindergarten daughter off at the public school just to find out that even in a small conservative town, uh, the school board, administrators, and parents are being bullied by a very small group of people here who are activists. And this, this, this is very problematic to me that you can have the preponderance of parents and administrators all of one mind and choose actually to change their policy based on the voice of a very few. And they did. So we didn't, we didn't, uh, we chose to homeschool our child and not put her in public school. And then I went to the public school and had a conversation with the front office and the administrators and explained calmly why it was that uh, we were disappointed in the decisions that uh, the county was making. Uh, and, and I won't get into the details, but the bottom line is, uh, if I hadn't paid attention as a parent, I would have known what was going on. I would have sent my, my daughter off to school and we would have gone to work and gone about our lives and been grateful for childcare for a few hours. That's not acceptable right now. Uh, and so parents need to be very involved. And I've been very glad to see, and I'm, I'm on the education rant at the moment, but you know, I've been glad to see all these videos showing up in social media during the past eight, nine months where school boards are being lit up by upset parents who are finally, they've had enough. <clears throat> um, so we need more activism, I'll put it that way, from conservatives, from people with traditional values, because they'll be steam. Make no mistake about it. The left is very active. They're much better at that than, than decent human beings who simply don't want to get in other people's faces. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't sit idly by and expect that you're not going to have your liberties taken from you. The government is actively taking them from you right now. And it's not going to give them back. Okay. So you need to get active. And, and that involves local government. It involves speaking up. It involves, unfortunately, work. And good solutions require work. Meaningful solutions require people to actually take, take action. It requires letters, and then it requires phone calls to your local government. Uh, they hate getting phone calls all day about various issues. And then <laughs> it means using the, the federal level elected uh, officials as well. And I can tell you from sitting down in D.C. Uh, this earlier this, this year, several months ago, <clears throat> they're getting a lot of letters and phone calls and it's making a difference. You might not see on a day-to-day -day basis what kind of impact you're making, but I tell you, it makes a difference. Uh, and so I'll leave it at that. Uh, otherwise, we'll get wrapped up around this. But I think you need to start paying attention and get involved by writing and calling uh, your, your local leaders and, and the leaders at the federal level. That's absolutely a great way to look at it. And I tell people this all the time. So your kid's in public school and they just brought in some sort of like transgender book into the library that happened to a school that's just stone's throw away from where I live. And it's like, what is your recourse as a parent? So you go in and talk to the teacher, you talk to the principal, you talk to the superintendent whose salaries are set regardless of whether or not your kid is in their classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you're at a private school, 
right? That's a little bit different because if, if that kid and 10 others like them leave, that affects the funding for the entire operation. So maybe you're going to get a little bit more of an ear that you can bend, but it's these parents that think that they can just complain and get their way. It's like, that's not how it goes. But I do like how you're talking about how people need to get involved because a lot of conservatives, which there are a lot of listeners to this that are conservatives, a lot of Christians, they want to be left alone, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, look, this is not my heel to die on. Just leave me alone. Let me be me. But that's not, what the other side wants, because, and I use this example a lot in the nineties, it was like, Hey, just leave us alone. We're gay. We want to be in love. Just leave us alone. Now it's, you need to cheer us on as we make out in public. And if you don't, you're a horribly bigoted person. Right. But for all these people, and and I say this a lot, but one day we woke up and we, we found out that the war was over and we never put on our helmet and picked up our sword right? It was just one of those things where it's like, you never saw a hill that was worth dying on. And there were, there were no more hills, right? Because it's scorched earth at that point. But now you got me all fired up, but Hey, yeah, so, I feel like, or go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You invoke this language from Paul about putting on God's armor. I mean, <clears throat> that's really look through my suggestions that I'll tell your viewer this, look through the suggestions at the end of my book and then pull out Paul's words about putting on the full armor of God. And I think you'll see some parallels there. Now, I wrote my book in secular terms, um, but that's really important. Be salt of the earth. I mean, salt is intended to preserve uh, the corruption but only of if society. It's salty. Only if it's salty, though. But if it loses if it's, it's salty. salty in it. Right. If you lose your savor, well, then you're good to be trodden under the foot of men. Yeah, the salt is meant to preserve. And, I, you know, one of the things that we mentioned earlier is that you kind of applauded my decision to separate and you know not get wrapped up around a pension. And, and that was important and good for my family, and that was our decision. But we need good people in our military. We need good people in our police force. And if everyone does what I did, and if that was right for everyone, well, we're in really big trouble. If they're all the decent people say, I'm not putting up with this anymore, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm leave, leaving the military. I'm leaving the police force. Uh, <clears throat> Boy, think about think about the consequences that would have if you've got a bunch of aspiring totalitarians or weak cowards who are left serving in our military. I mean, then when you have totalitarians in power, they're able to use them for their purposes, and they're not going to stand. They're not going to stand up, put their foot down. I just read an article two days ago that twenty-seven Air Force pilots have resigned over the forced vaccinations. Twenty-seven Air Force pilots. Now, I don't know who they are. I don't know what jets they fly. Some of them are F twenty-two pilots. We've had a terrible pilot shortage in this country in our Air Force for a very long time, for, for like the last decade. Uh, yeah, like the last decade. And <clears throat> losing 27 pilots, it doesn't just take one year of pilot training to create combat-ready pilots. It takes many more years. You can't, you can't afford to be losing your decent people. And everything we're doing at the moment disincentivizes courageous, decent people from wanting to stick around because they care a great deal about getting on with their family, not being tread upon, uh, and and having liberty, and um, so I'm grateful to hear when when good people are wanting to stick around, speak up, push back, um, uh, and for me uh, and our family, it was the best choice to 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 move on out. Well, that's what we say all the time is to be able to push back darkness. And again, you've got to be in the game. So as, as a follow-up to your calls to action, guys, you got to be in the game. You've got to be paying attention. And again, Sun Tzu, if you don't know your enemy, you can't fight against them. You're going to be fighting on a front that doesn't exist. But Matthew, I get the sense that that we could keep going, but we're going to go ahead and put a wrap on this particular interview. I feel like we're going to probably do this again at some point. But as for now, that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? First, thanks for having me on. Uh, 
you do a great job. Um, I do want to say one thing. So I'm gonna, you, you might want to end your podcast with a, uh, with a, a quick ending like that, but I, now I'm going to stumble a bit as I try to remember what you just said at, at last. Uh, and so our interview will end a little bit clumsily, but I'll, um, <clears throat> Oh, okay. I've remembered what it is. You mentioned, you know, many people might think this isn't my hill to die on. Hmm. And it is wise to pick your battles. Okay. You, you don't want to take up the sword on every issue. Uh, I was against forced vaccinations. That wasn't my hill to die on in the military. It was this, it was this stuff. But I want your viewer to understand if they have the mentality that this stuff that they see happening in society is not their hill to die on. Um, they need to understand that our, our country stands in peril uh, and nearly probably most every country in human history has recognized the peril far too late to do anything about it. There are those that I talk with uh, today who know what they're talking about as far as all of this stuff goes, who are already concerned that we might be recognizing too late. And so, yeah, this this hill, the proverbial hill, it's time for you to stand up and, and start fighting. And I don't mean violently per se. What I mean is that you have to be courageous. You have to do all the things I recommend at the end of the book and that you, Kyle, are recommending to your listeners. So I just want to make that point uh, your country stands in peril. Uh, be active. Uh, be the salt of the earth. And, um, and, and despite an unwilling left, uh, I'll say, or an unwilling leftist radical activist, we need to seek for the kind of unity uh, that, that has made our country commendable. And, oh, I should end on this longer than you wanted. I should end on this. You know, we're approaching the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Regardless of whether someone agrees with or disagrees with our reasons for entering Afghanistan now, uh, in hindsight, there's a big difference between America in the aftermath of 2001, September 11, 2001, and today. And it's that we were united around fighting against a common enemy and in a belief about the greatness of the American ideal in 2001. And we're becoming more and more polarized and divided today. That's a big difference. And the American people need to recognize that and understand just how dangerous, dangerous and precarious a situation it is that we find ourselves in and a fine line that we're walking right now between peace and conflict. Uh, it's, it's as if the angels of heaven are holding back the conflict and allowing us some more time to get it right. So. I'd invite your viewer to try their best to be courageous and stand up. All right. I think that's a great word to leave it on. Matthew Lohmeyer, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, Kyle. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Matthew Lohmeyer. Before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that by providing you content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the two links I've got for you today, I've got his book that is Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military. So you can go to the website and check that out. And then also he mentioned a YouTube video in there by Christopher Rufo called Critical Race Theory. I've got that here for you as well. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this. I really do appreciate it. 
appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a very positive review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. You can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.